0: 333-1933. Online at mypremiereortho.com.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the contentious right-to-work legislation that's working its way through the Indiana General Assembly. We have... Three guests with us in the studio. Ken Dalschmidt is here. He is an IU Maurer Maurer School of Law professor. Uh, He specializes in labor and employment law. Also, Todd Thacker from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union in Terre Haute is here with us. And Chris Schrader is here. Chris is the director of government affairs for the Indiana State Council of of the Society of Human Resource Management. And also, we're going to be joined by phone, we hope, uh, by Brandon Smith. Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter who's going to give us an update on how this legislation is doing today. So, if you want to join us on the program, please give us a call 855 0811 in Bloomington or 877 285 9348. And the uh, web address is slash noon edition. If you want to go there, you can join the live chat. We have a poll question. You can just sort of participate in the program. So, Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm going to start with uh, Kenneth Dalschmidt and ask just to sort of give us some context of
2: right-to-work
1: legislation and right-to-work
2: laws. Well, I think there's both legal issues and there's economic issues. And actually, I've I've been fortunate enough in my career to study and and research on both. And, uh, you know, you hear a lot of uh, different disputes about what uh, right-to-work law would do to the state. You hear people saying that it gives people the right not to join a union. You hear that it'll increase jobs, you hear that it'll decrease jobs, you hear that it'll decrease wages. And the question is, is what really is the issue and what are the economic facts uh, behind the issue? And in fact, uh, on the legal issue, under federal law, currently no one can require anyone to join a union. No one can actually require them to even pay full union dues. And also under federal law, unions are required to fairly represent all of the employees in their bargain unit, which means not only supplying them with union staff to file grievances or to negotiate on their behalf or whatever, but it can also mean hiring lawyers, which is quite costly, and they can be sued if they don't do that. And they are regularly sued in lawsuits that are supported by the right-to-work organization. Uh, And so they have have this problem. Unions have this problem in that they are required, legally required, to represent everybody – but they are—they cannot uh, compel people to be members or to pay dues. And the, uh, what's allowed under federal law to solve this problem is they are allowed to negotiate voluntary union security agreements with the employer, which say that as a condition of employment, the, the people you if you don't become a member, if you don't pay dues, you have to at least pay an agency fee which covers the cost of representing you. And the reason why unions need this is because if they don't have this ability, they can't pay for the services they provide. And like any business that can't get paid for the services they provide, they would go out of business. So if they don't have union security, it makes unions weaker. And so right to work would prohibit unions. From right. Doing and, and in fact, it's a, it's really a misnomer. I mean, right to work is an example of, of a, uh, I mean, it's, it's tr- terrific propaganda in labeling an act. It's not really, it doesn't create a right to a job. It doesn't preserve anybody's right to a job. Uh, I've heard the detractors call it the right to freeload on union services, which is something you'd call it. I think trying not to be pejoratively, if you just look at what the act does, what it is, is it's a no union security act. I mean, they, it prohibits, it makes criminal negotiating a union security clause, which is which is amazing under the law because usually when we don't like contracts, we just make them unenforceable. But here, because we're dealing with working people, I guess we're willing to put them in jail. Uh, um, but now on the economics of it, and I've looked at this quite closely, Chamber of Commerce Report makes some pretty amazing uh, claims, really. Uh, at one point, they claim that if we adopt a right to work or a no union security law, it will increase Hoosier income by $12,000 a year per family. And I don't think that even passes the smell test. So when you look at the, the Chamber of Commerce report, I have to admit, you know, they talk about there's lies, there's damn lies in statistics. It doesn't rise to the level of statistics. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just not very – it's not even believable. Um, the problems with the statistics, one of the things that they look at is they try to look at economic growth. And they say that on average, if you look at non-right-to-work states and right-to-work states, right-to-work states grow faster on average. And they look at the period, I believe it's 1977 to 2008. And the problem with that is, is when you just look at averages, you mask a whole lot of things that are going on, a whole lot of variables. And in fact, if you take out North Dakota from the right-to-work states, which has grown very quickly because they have shale oil, in fact, the reverse is true. The the non-right-to-work states have grown faster than the right-to-work states. And, in fact, when you look at the statistics, four of the five fastest-growing states in the country are non-right-to-work. And if you uh, do a more sophisticated analysis – What you find out, you have to try to control for other variables. There's lots of variables going on here. There's geography. There's education. Education is actually, I'm going to hit that theme. That's actually the most important thing about getting jobs to a state is to have a good educational system. But if you control for these other variables, there was a study at Ball State by Professor Michael Hicks. And he found that, he looked specifically just recently at manufacturing in Indiana. And he's a school of business professor. He found that right to work would have no impact on increasing uh, manufacturing jobs in the state. The uh, seminal work on this is by Professor Bellman, Black, and Roberts. They wrote in 2001 on this. They also used uh, multivariate regression to try to uh, separate out the effect of right to work. They found no effect. There's another study by Lonnie Stevens just recently done, and uh, it's, I think it's in 2010. Uh, and similar multivariate regression did not find any effect. But what they do find is that right to work or the no union security uh, bills do lower wages. There was a study by Marty Wilson in 2012, a professor at Notre Dame who looked at average Uh, um, uh, 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 incomes between right-to-work and non-right-to-work states without controlling for cost-of-living, he found that in non-right-to-work states, families on average had $7,835 more than in right-to-work states. Now, right-to-work states are usually low-wage, low-education, low-aspirations, low-cost-of-living states. And if you want to control for the fact that nobody has any money to spend in your state, if you want to control for cost-of-living, then you'll find that uh, in, right, in right-to-work states, they only make $2,176 less. Wolfson looked at that, too. Now, I already talked about the problem of just looking at averages. So if you do the more sophisticated analysis, if you do the multivariate regression analysis, and there are people who have done that. There's a study by Gould, Elise, and Sherholz just done in, in 2011. And they control for a variety of variables. And what they found was that wages were 3% lower in uh, right-to-work states, and both for union workers and for non-union workers. They also found that health care benefits were available to 3% less workers in right-to-work states, and they found that pensions were available for 5% less workers. So when we do the sophisticated analysis, what we actually find is right-to-work decreases. It has no effect on bringing in manufacturing jobs. It decreases wages and it decreases benefits. And, of course, it makes unions weaker.
1: Okay. We're going to go to uh, Brandon on the phone, Brandon Smith, who's going to give us an update in where the legislation is right now and what's happening up there in Indianapolis, Brandon.
3: Well, uh, today was a bit of a a busy day here in the legislature. Um, House Democrats have been saying all week that uh, the reason they've been staying out this week is they've been redrafting an amendment That would put right to work on a statewide referendum in November. Um, It was, uh, they found out early, uh, late Monday. uh, Pat Bauer says he found out that that amendment, that that concept of putting it on a statewide referendum, the way it was drafted, was potentially unconstitutional. So they've been saying, we need more time to redraft this amendment. Well, they redrafted it and it was filed. um, So they have a new amendment in place now, but. When Pat Bauer came to the floor this morning, he said that he wanted assurances from the Republicans that this new con- uh, this new amendment that would put right to work on a statewide referendum is, in fact, constitutional, so that when they have the vote on that amendment, that the only argument can be made is whether or not you want a referendum. Mm-hmm. And, and Speaker Bosna said that's not what we do here. We're the legislature. We're not the judiciary. We don't decide on the constitutionality of things. And that you know, your amendment will get a full hearing, a full vote and all of that, but we're not going to decide on the constitutionality of it beforehand. And Pat Bauer said, sorry, that's not good enough. He wants the weekend to get the word out to the public that they believe this is constitutional. And Pat Bauer says they will be back in Monday to finally do right to work on second reading, which is the amendment process on the House of the floor, on the floor of the House.
1: Okay. Now, has the Senate taken it up today?
3: The Senate will be taking it up today. They have not convenient, but uh, they will be addressing right to work on second reading. The amendment process there today. They don't have nearly as many amendments filed. It's, uh, they only have, I think, nearly 20 amendments, compared to more than 50 in the House. So that won't be quite as extensive a process. But some of the amendments between the two houses uh, are similar. I'm not sure if. There's a statewide referendum amendment in the Senate or not, but there are some important ones, and we'll see what happens later today.
0: Have they concluded their business for the day? The,
3: the House? House has concluded. The House has concluded their business for today. They will come back in uh, Monday at 1.30. Okay.
1: All right, Brandon. Thank you for that update. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. All right, thanks a lot, Brandon Smith from uh, Indianapolis, Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Reporter. Uh, before I go back, and I want—I know Chris is going to want to respond to some of the things that, that Ken had to say, but I want to go to a, a clip we have of Governor Daniels uh, in talking about why he thinks it's an important bill and why he brought it up. This comes from WFYI's Lawmakers Program.
4: We learned a lot in seven years. We learned we lose a lot of jobs in Indiana. Um, I've talked to companies from elsewhere who who won't look at us and uh, tell them about all our other advantages. It's pretty clear what the one thing is. All the site selectors tell you this.
1: All right. So uh, that's Governor Daniels talking about uh, his reasons for supporting it this year after he hasn't really pushed it for the last uh, several years. Chris Schrader, uh, I think your organization ha- supports the uh, legislation, correct? Yes, we do. And uh, can you uh, tell us why you support it and, and if you want to respond to anything that Ken said? And Ken, by the way, thank you for all that. That was quite a, a lot of background well, and, research, and a lot of research. We appreciate
2: it. I'll send you the tuition bill. All
0: right.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Uh,
5: it is a stated pub- public policy position of our association that we support the right of workers to organize union, if they believe that's in their best interest, um, to choose not to do that if they don't think it is, and to not pay dues if they don't believe that what they're getting from the union is commensurate with what they're paying for. And that's the, the missing piece in this, if you will, right now, in that because uh, as the uh, professor described when you have a union security clause, once you've got that, then the worker is indeed uh, lashed to the mass to pay it. And so the fundamental disconnect there, if you will, from a worker standpoint is um, insufficient mechanism to affect change. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I r- ran across this just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, this happened in Virginia, what I'm describing. Virginia has been a right-to-work state for a long time. Um, and it involved union And the union members became uh, grossly dissatisfied with the business agent that they had. And organizations, whether they're uh, uh, union or not union, these kinds of things can come up. They certainly can in any type of organization. And in this particular case, it did. And um, they did not feel uh, that their concerns were being addressed sufficiently. And when the window of opportunity came open uh, for them to make the decisions to whether or not they would pay dues or not, in in that particular contract, it was a two-week window. Right? Annually, you make a decision in that contract to decide whether they're not going to continue due support or not. And a, a, a significant portion of the union members did not contribute at that point. Uh, that got the attention of the national. Their concerns were heard. The business agent was removed. Someone they put in support did because the contract allowed them to begin contributing at any time they wanted to. So it's one time to get out, but any time you want to get on. Uh, they then began their dues contribution and continued. And so that, that's an example of what we see as the worker leverage that, that currently is absent from the present arrangement uh, that we feel would help workers. Um, the uh, the issue of economics, and um, I am not, uh, from my professional standpoint, an economist, uh, but I, I will speak more on the side of opportunity because the, the one thing I'm uncomfortable doing and won't do is um, – project off of data um, what a, a likely outcome is going to be in terms of certainty. And I completely agree we don't have certainty here. Uh, the studies that the prof- professor referred to, I won't challenge their outcomes or his characterization of those. Uh, but I will say this, um, if, if to kind of frame up the opportunity loss we're talking about, um, Indiana right now wins about 66 percent of the time. In terms of opportunities, uh, if you um, pay attention to reporting from the Department of Commerce of the state. Uh, So we're winning about 66 percent of the time right now. And it's because we've done a lot of things well to position ourselves fundamentally uh, to bring uh, folks into the state. Um, What you find is that uh, we're we're missing out on about a third of the opportunities, as as the governor stated. And so you have a situation, therefore, where you have a a fractional percentage of the workforce that benefits from the current arrangement, and they do benefit, and I don't dispute that, Um, acting in essence as a blocking agent for the vast percentage to get opportunity, and this is not certainty, but but this is opportunity. So my projection would be if all the state did was know better than it's done and win 66 percent of the new opportunity then you would get some jobs. And I don't know what they'd pay and I don't know what categories of labor they would be in or whatnot, but the the opportunity would certainly be there. Uh, At the end of the day, what this fundamentally comes down to in my mind, uh, and again, I understand the concern of the unions in this. I'm not um, insensitive to it. Um, But the fact of the matter is, Thousands of organizations have existed for a long, long time, and I myself belong to another that I've voluntarily contributed to over my entire life, thousands of dollars without the force of contract. And I genuinely believe that if the unions are indeed providing valuable service to their members and delivering um, uh, the products and services that their contract calls for, that a decent and reasonable person would continue
1: to pay the wages of that. All right. Todd Thacker, you can respond. I know you're, you. You look like you want
4: to. I, I am glad to be here. This is my first uh, time doing this, and and I guess I'll do it in order that I heard it. I, I think the professor did a very good job. Uh, fact base I wrote down, uh, and rather it's a certain. I think there's a lot more certainty to that fact base, and I'm I am in the electrical union, and I went through apprenticeship, and I'm very. I'm very much a technical and like to have some supporting evidence why we do what we do. Um, now, what I would say, is when you said that we were going to have a clip from the governor, I was hoping it was the one in 2006 when he addressed the Teamsters or the letter in 2004 when he said we didn't need right to work state. You know, for seven years he's saying we don't need right to work. We already have a business friendly. We're sixth in the nation in selecting these jobs. And that's in a fact based on from the area development online. And then we talked to. Uh, Mr. Snyder that says uh, about the story about Virginia. That's the first time I've heard about that story but uh, every union I know of they have elections and they have a method and it's democracy and they don't have to pay as it was said in an earlier segment I think that was a 1963 court decision GM uh, where they said that there, you don't have to pay union dues um, and there, he did uh, Mr. Snyder did say that you have a You can only pay a fee on some unions, and you have a period of time that you can enroll. But um, what I haven't heard a lot about is on those companies that that's 34 percent that don't come here, uh, the great one I see is the Volkswagen one uh, where they didn't call back. Now, if they didn't call back, how do you know what they didn't call back about? Now, when I was in high school and I dated a lot, uh, I had girls that didn't call back. Now, I didn't know why they didn't call back, but I was pretty sure I knew. And maybe that's where Mitch has that feeling. He's, he's short. He's been rejected a lot. He maybe knows that, what, why they're not calling back. I don't know. Uh, so we, we go down through the line there. And, and I say is that I agree with the Ball State study that Mr. Hicks did. Forty-eight uh, percent aren't even sure what right to work is. I know they said that we had a summer study that was very loaded, and it was in Indianapolis. And Terre Haute, the mayor has even said is, a Republican mayor said, why don't we have a a study here in Terre Haute or one in Bloomington, you know, across the state? Let's get that. And I like the idea. I don't always agree with the Tea Party, but they want to hear the people. So I think we might hear a little more from the lunch pail Republicans or the Tea Party, or it's not just the unions that are not, not necessarily for right to work. I think if we really got through and you do a survey, you would really find out the general public, one, don't know or don't care or have an opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers are eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington. 877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can go to the website, wfiu.org, slash Noon Edition, to join a live chat.
0: Now, this is uh, from someone who wrote in on our website, and it says, and I, I'm not familiar with the video he's referencing, so I'll leave this up to you guys to comment on, but he says, um, do you believe that the latest video of the governor telling a union dinner he is absolutely opposed to right to work will sway any legislators to vote against the legislation?
4: Are you familiar with that? Anybody? I have a video on my phone here if you want to see it. It was 2006. You can't see it on the radio. I'll okay? let <laughs> oh, you yourself <laughs> oh, yeah. then then you can yeah, comment so, on it. Okay. Um, It's a 2006 award dinner banquet held in Indianapolis for the Teamsters. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he addressed that here we don't need civil unrest is what he's saying in this, and he doesn't he he doesn't think we need to change any of the common labor any of the labor laws such as common construction, which is very near and dear to most of the building trades, and we don't need to change right to work. Now that's the same comments that he gave to the operating engineers in 2004 in a letter that was on the Rachel Mad Rachel Owl show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and uh, that's when she interviewed uh, Mr. Fagan from Local 150, the operating engineers, which they have formed that super PAC called the Lunchpail Republicans. Mm-hmm.
0: So, if if he's stating that um, Indiana is already an economic development friendly state, what what do you think is the real motivation behind this? I mean, surely, uh, well, Todd, you've got a theory. I'd like I to hear it. I got a theory,
4: it. and 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 there again, as I use the kiss method, keep it simple, stupid because it works well for me, and, uh, and my members appreciate that type of, you know, plain talk. Uh, it's to punish the unions, and it's an economic punishment tool for the unions. If there already is that they don't have to pay union dues, but maybe some of them don't even know that. I mean, we could do a survey on that, and I would concur that most of them are happy with their services, if, and usually none of us make a change in our lives, personal lives or business, unless we're unhappy. And so if they are unhappy, they could find out, well, I really don't have to pay this. Uh, But uh, it's all about is if we have less, we give a lot of money to the people that happen to be the minority at the state house right now. And the same thing happened in 1957. There was an overwhelming majority of one party over the other, and they passed right to work. And then they found – then in 1963, we get a decision from the federal Supreme Court, which now is loaded up seven to two. But then – We go ahead, and and in 1965, we think it's not even relevant here in Indiana, and it's still not relevant in Indiana, but it is a way to try to educate. You can use a fun—let's just say— Indiana Opportunity Fund to blast everybody's mind. And if you say it enough times, you know, they're going to start thinking, well, maybe we don't have to pay dues and maybe the, they won't have as much money to give to the Dems.
0: So the 30,000 feet view is, in your opinion, maybe this is a way to uh, undo the Democratic Party?
4: Well, it's the, not only the Democrat Party, because we as labor unions don't just give to Democrats. We give to labor friendly. And and here's the thing, like the final thing I think on it. How ironic. On Martin Luther King's birthday, we have a press conference, and he says in 1961, right to work is a law to rob us of our civil and our job rights. Now, and we're going to listen to this fund, which we don't know who they are, uh, the Indiana Opportunity Fund, or we're going to listen to the chamber whose concern about freeing the workers now, that's ironic, especially on Martin Luther King Day when we, when we talked about he, spent, he devoted his whole life. I doubt that we'll have, Mitch Daniels will have a uh, national holiday like Martin Luther King.
1: Uh, we're going to go to a quick call, and then we're going to take a break. And then I know our other panelists want to weigh in on sure. this, yep. too. So we're and gonna...
0: when we get back, we'll also get to some of the online All questions. All right.
1: It's going to be a wild next 30 minutes. <laughs> so we're gonna go. To, we're going to go to Dan first. Dan from Brown County. No, hello. Hi, Dan.
6: Uh, yeah, in response to the last. Um, the last uh, speaker, I think the Democrat, uh, the Republicans. Um, it's not ironic; it's it's perversely deceiving. Uh, I I received a, a questionnaire from Todd Young recently, and by the if I had answered that by the time I would finished, I'd be saying something that I didn't really mean, and it's just that's the way that it seems the Republicans practice governance now. And I that's my comment. All right.
1: All right, Dan. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, You're listening to noon edition. We're talking about right to work. It's a lively show and the next 30 minutes is going to be pretty wild. So I hope you'll come back and join us. Um, We'll be right back.
7: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald-Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our three guests today, Kenneth Dalschmidt, an IU Maurer School of Law professor who specializes in labor and employment law, Todd Thacker, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union from Terre Haute, and Chris Schrader, the Director of Government Affairs for the Indiana State Council of Society of Human Resource Management. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll free 877-285-9348. And you can go to the website wfiu.org slash noon edition to uh, join a live chat. We had Brandon Smith from Indiana Public Broadcasting on the program earlier. He did update us that the house has already uh, discussed right to work this morning. Um, the, there were some amendments uh, that the Democrats were interested in introducing, but now it's sort of been put on the, uh, it has been put on the back burner until Monday. The Senate's going to take up the issue this afternoon. We have a phone call from Suzanne. She's been patient. Suzanne?
6: Hi. Uh, I'd like to start by saying I feel very fortunate that I was able to catch this program today so that I could get a clearer picture of what right to work legislation means. Uh-huh. And what I don't find clear is the premise that right-to-work will bring jobs to Indiana. And I was hoping that that could be addressed.
2: Okay.
1: We'll uh, address that. I know Ken Dowschmidt talked about that a little bit early in the program, but, Ken, you can respond to that and then whatever else you have on your mind right now. Sure. That actually
2: goes into what I was going to say or what I wanted to say. Um, I mean, I think the best empirical evidence is that it won't bring jobs to Indiana, uh, and Um, I cited some empirical studies earlier that have tried to look at that rigorously. And when you look at the larger literature, um, right to work, if it was ever important in terms of bringing jobs to to, uh, states, it's much less important now than it used to be. And there's actually a study that tries to look at its impact and says that the impact of right to work laws uh, in terms of job production or non-production was back in the 1950s. And right now when you're in an economy where – where only less than seven percent of the private sector is organized, and the real issue is whether or not you can compete with China where they get paid you know cents a couple cents an hour, and they don 't always get paid uh, um, right to work is really kind of irrelevant in terms of uh, bringing jobs or not um, I will one thing that 's been cited is these surveys as to how to relocate businesses, and the chambers study cites a survey that says that, uh, and the governor's talked about this, he says that when they decide where to locate a business, they go through this list and they tick off, are you right to work or you're not right to work? And in fact, if you go back and look at the source of that information, it's a site from the mid-1970s, and that source has later been updated and does not Uh, say that anymore. And if you look at the most recent surveys, and there are magazines on business relocations, and there's organizations on business relocations, and you can look at what they say is important. When I looked at these, the highest I could find right to work ranked was 14th. And more often, it was lower than that. And what was uh, always number one on the list in terms of where do you want to locate a business is an educated populace. So if you're really concerned about bringing uh, jobs to Indiana, what you want to do is fully fund education and have the best schools you can, because that's what will bring jobs in the state, and right to work is largely irrelevant.
1: Okay. Chris? I appreciate be, that. Okay.
5: Uh, sure. I, um, I'll try to help a little bit on that. The, um, I did this same thing the professor tried to do, and I did the best research that I could, and the most recent um, corporate site selection survey that I could find was late 2011 by Boyd. Um, it listed in order... Uh, Of importance. So these were people casting votes in a poll. I have no idea the sample or or any of those things, right? This is just most recent data I could find. Uh, They listed availability of financial incentives as number one. Um, Number two were environmental rules and regulations and the ease of navigating those within a state. And number three was its right to work status. And uh, so the, the thing I would point out uh, is that when you when you look at how well Indiana is performing, we've made enormous inroads in the last. Uh, eight years. And I would certainly say, and and the governor needs no defense for me to be certain, but I would say that we're in a different spot now than we were four and five years ago in terms of the attributes you need as a state to succeed. And so where we are right now is we're consistently coming in in the top five in so many categories. When you look who are getting beaten by it's right to work states. So our true economic competitors in the area aren't the natural ones we would think of of Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, et cetera, who were getting beat by a South Carolina, we're getting beat by a Virginia, we're getting beat by Texas. And uh, that's the, I think that's the, the sea change, if you will, in in terms of now from the last, you know, eight okay. years.
2: Ken? Well my understanding, I mean South Carolina has been mentioned a lot <laughs> and uh uh my understanding is they, they, they haven't actually introduced either a, a, uh, a witness that said we didn't move to Indiana because they, were right, they, they weren't right to work, or even a witness who said, uh, I have to pay an agency fee under a union security agreement, and I'm unhappy with that. And it's interesting that if that's such a problem for people, why, that ha- why there haven't been witnesses like that at the state legislature. Uh, but on South Carolina... Um, uh, uh, you know, South Carolina is going to get some jobs. We're going to get some jobs. Just because they're getting jobs doesn't mean that they're necessarily beating us. And when you look at South Carolina, I was interested actually to read in your paper the other day, mm-hmm. <laughs> very good paper I read every day, Thank you. Uh, a description of South Carolina for the for the primary. And they were talking about how – it had a higher unemployment rate than the rest of the country, how they had a lower education rate, how they were lower wage, there were less college-educated people, doesn't sound like a place that I aspire for Indiana to become. Mm-hmm. And and so, the, I mean, a realistic appraisal of, of South Carolina versus Indiana, we do very well. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, Chris, I wanted to follow up with you, uh, you know, when you talked before about the uh, 66% win rate that mm-hmm. Indiana has. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know how that would compare to other states? Because that sounds awfully good to me. No,
5: it, it, it is good, and that's why we consistent. again, when you are consistently coming in, in the top four or five, you clearly have to be doing a lot of things right. And the distinction I would draw and, – and again, I don't represent the Chamber of Commerce. I represent the side of human resource management. So we're more on the opportunity side of things than, than, than anything else. Uh, but the, uh, the issue has now become when you're doing a lot of things right – the differences that you can take to be marginally better become narrower, if you will. And so the way we look at it from our position is there's virtually nothing that the state should be doing to remove barriers to opportunities to Hoosier workers. We have got a serious, serious matter of unemployed manufacturing human capital that cannot be easily deployed into the opportunities that come today, and we should leave no rock unturned in creating opportunities. Okay. Mary
0: Catherine? Yeah, we've had uh, several comments come on uh, online and so we'll start with this one from Tom and he begins with a question. He says, why was this issue never on anyone's campaign platform? Could it be the National Right to Work Committee based out of Virginia, which is funded by the National Chamber of Commerce and Big Business, saw an opportunity with the Republicans taking control over all three branches of Indiana state government. They wait in the wings until they see these opportunities and swoop in to influence the state representatives with money and support. Right to work is not a Hoosier initiative. It is a national agenda put forth by a small number who have big money. Any comments, folks?
2: Yeah, Ken. I'd have to say I think there's a lot of truth to that when you look at the, the movement nationwide, and this is, this is part of a large movement. I mean, first it was going after the public sector unions, and now this is what they can do at the state level to go after the private sector unions, and, and largely it is it, it fits both big businesses' needs because what it's going to do is lower wages in the state, which raises their profits. And it meets Republicans' needs because it helps to weaken traditional allies of Democrats in both the private and the public sector, and, and so it's going to try to ensure a Republican government for, for the future. And and I, it was not talked about in the in the last election either in Wisconsin or Ohio or Indiana. Nobody ran on this platform, and and uh, uh, it, it does. I, I, I I'm very disturbed about what this means for the future of our democracy.
1: Todd, I wanted to ask you uh, – some of. Uh, I talked to some of our local union people, and they talked about how the support for the Democratic Party uh, from unions is generally on the national stage, that locals don't get that involved. That's what they were – at least these particular locals were telling me. Is that
4: true? Don't, absolutely not. Uh, we actually uh, – Whatever the law allows us to do, that's what we do. Uh-huh. We, we we do the maximum, uh, and it's because the, our members want us to. Uh, and and to that point, uh, we also. I I guess I want to clarify one thing. Uh, Even though I am from Terre Haute, we represent 15 counties, and Monroe and Brown and Green and and Sullivan are part of those, and a big part of your listening area. And we have an office here in Terre Haute as well. So we're involved uh, with local politics, uh, as I guess all politics are local politics. Yeah, that's right. right. So I would say is that all – all money comes from – and we're really a grassroots organization, so that's yeah. how I view ours, you know, that, okay. that I think it is. And, and I would say that uh, that was my question, that, that email I asked uh, Representative uh, Heaton, that same question. Uh-huh. And uh, it wasn't anybody's number one priority at the election, but it's everybody that's in control right now's number one priority. And, uh-huh. and that goes back to my thing. Who is the Indiana Opportunity Fund? Big money
0: feels a little bait-and-switchy, doesn't it, well, that we didn't talk about this during the elections, and yet this is what we're talking about while they're, while we're in this very short and precious period of time when our assembly is in session.
4: But that shouldn't surprise us, because isn't that been the abortion? Isn't that always something they run on? But they've got seven conservative-appointed Supreme Court justices, and we haven't overturned it since seventy three.
0: Well, here's another question that came in. That That's a bigger issue. We, won't, we can't get there. We, we can't yeah, go there today. All right, here somewhere. we go. This one came in uh, over the Internet, too. It asks, when would this terrible law take effect? Apparently, a little... Uh, comment in there. We'll we'll, we'll say, when would this law take effect? And and can it be changed again with the the next election or the next session, I guess?
5: Yeah, typically, uh, laws passed in the legislature become effective on July 1 of uh, the uh, year. Uh, Legislation can be written to take effect immediately upon passage or signature. It's kind of rare. The smoking bill that's currently before the House is designed that way. Uh, you don't normally see that, so the mm-hmm. standard is July one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, any legislative act uh, can be overturned by a future legislator. Uh, Todd pointed out, you know, it was a right to work state in 1957, overturned in 1962 by an enterprising young speaker of the House, Birch Bayh.
0: Okay. okay, here's okay. another one. Uh, besides weakening a union's financial position, what possible other specific advantage does right to, does having right to work offer a business? And uh, what financial effect specifically does this contract provision? Uh, would would it have on a business financially? Sorry, this is a little strangely written. Do do you get the? I the think gist I get the. the yeah, okay. Yes,
5: I think get the gist of it for a, a business itself uh, with an existing contract. Uh, on the business side of it, I don't know what kind of impact it would have. Um, where the uh, greatest opportunity, I think, for disruption would come, is if you had a situation in which workers being hired into it uh, into the company did not have a high adoption rate of deciding to pay dues, and that caused friction within the workforce among uh, a high percentage of the workforce that did believe dues paying was right, The union membership was the right thing to do. And so from an HR perspective, if you've got to, two groups uh, uh, of employees with competing interests within a company, I, I can see how that could cause trouble. But in terms of the impact on the co- company itself right now, I, I don't see it. So the can and then the,
2: the uh, I- impact I see as to why... I think the Chamber of Commerce uh, is so strongly in favor of this is that if you weaken unions, uh, you lower, you, you take the upward pressure off of wages in a state. In other words, unions, when they have higher wages and they have benefits, they set a standard for a state in order, for, even for non-union firms to compete with them, they raise their wages and benefits. And that's why when you look at the studies, when you look at right-to-work states versus non-right-to-work states, the right-to-work states have lower wages and benefits both for union and for non-union uh, employees. So, it, basically, the people that stand to, to directly benefit from this, I would say, would be the existing, the existing uh, businesses in the state uh, will have less pressure on wages in the future, and they'll make more profits.
4: And I would like to add just to that the same thing. I think it's a race to the bottom. In my opinion, is if we have less disposable income, we're going to drive our consumers to big box. We're going to cut out that small business. We're not going to go and do the things or support our local person because we don't have as much disposable income. I think that's where uh, somebody much above my education level is, talks about the economics of it. But when that that's comes down to that trickle-down economics, and I think we already lived through that in the 80s, I don't want to go there again. And. Uh, and so that's what I'm afraid is we had a movie that we showed when a store came to Terre Haute, uh, the high cost, the low prices. And the small business people in the community support, worked with the unions to say we're better off if we don't have that giant coming to town. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where we're going to drive everybody. Okay, Dan. Well, and you see this argument
2: arise, and and I believe in it. Uh, You you see this arise during really bad economic times. You see this during the Great Depression. They talked about it. Now, during the Great Recession, we're talking about it, which is that Without a healthy middle class that has a lot of disposable income, your economy grows slower, Mm -hmm. and frankly, your democracy is more at risk because if you have a few wealthy people who have a lot of economic power and have a lot of political power, they control the society. And and so what you worry about is is that we're not going to be the United States like we were when I grew up, when you had a healthy middle class that had disposable income, could send their kids to college, and also could pick their political representatives. We're going to become more like Mexico is what's going to happen. You're going to have some ruling elite who have all the money and have all the political control. And it's a, it's a crappy place to live. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, our phone numbers again, 855-0811, 285 wfiu.org slash noon edition. If you want to join a live chat or send us a question, we're going to go to the phones. Wayne's been waiting for five minutes or so. Wayne? Hi. Hi, Wayne.
6: I heard one of your guests, I think one who was opposed to write a work, say that he wanted democracy to prevail. Isn't it very undemocratic to walk out of the legislature for the specific purpose of stopping the democratic process? Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it undemocratic to frustrate the democratic process?
4: All right. Well, we uh, will get some responses. Uh, Todd? You? Well, I, I think that is a, it's, it's, it's a version of democracy that uh, they're saying that uh, we have to have a quorum. And uh, it's a tactic that both parties have used. Let's not think that the Democrats thought this up. Let's not give them that much credit. This has been going on for years, and both sides have used this.
2: Ken? I do think – I mean, you know, there is the argument that you're violating the rules. You should be there. They won the majority. They should get to do what they do, and then you can hold them responsible. When you look at, in Wisconsin, they had the same thing. And if you look at who the voters held responsible there when they had the recalls, they kicked two Republicans out. They didn't kick any of the Democrats out. So the, at least in terms of the will of the people, trying to represent the will of the people at the time, you can argue that if most people don't want right to work, which at least there's some surveys that say that they don't, Uh, then they're the ones that are representing the will of the majority, and they'll either be held accountable at the next election or not, or else the Republicans will be held accountable.
0: Well, there are very few tools available when you're in uh, the minority, too, and this is just one tool that Mm -hmm. is available to you, and both sides have used it when they needed it.
5: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, uh, both sides may have used it, but a matter of degree is present here that Democrats last year set a national record. That beat Texas. No, uh,
4: that's not true.
5: The, uh, the issue uh, that I think we need to consider here, though, that um, I think present, is that all of our arguments right now take the presumption that union workers are suddenly given the opportunity to not pay dues – in great and huge numbers simply stop doing that. And I don't, I don't quite understand that. If if the unions are providing valuable service, and if the members believe that they're receiving valuable service, I can't fathom why they would walk away. So if that fear is so profound, then the unions have bigger problems than this legislation presents, just, just from a internalized standpoint.
2: Ken? No, it's it's not necessarily that people are unhappy with unions. You would be there would be people with are happy with unions but because they don't have to pay union dues would not it's basically you're running a union with a tip jar and i don't think any member of the chamber of commerce would run their business that way i bought a car earlier this year i paid fifteen thousand bucks for it i don't think they would have given me the car if i just said well and i'll see if i'm happy with a year and then i'll give you what i think it's worth they uh, no business would ever run their their business that way so you i mean you can be like You know, blanch from Streetcar name Desire and just live on the generosity of others. But you're not going to do very well in this world. Uh, It doesn't mean that they're all going to quit at once. It means that over time, it's going to take a drain on unions. And I think there's no doubt that it does. When you look at the data, unions are weaker in in right-to-work states. And that's the intent of this law.
0: Okay, I've got another comment that came in online I want to get on. Uh, it says, it is an issue between workers and unions. Companies still must deal with unions. Union security agreements are agreed upon by both private entities. No one is forced to agree to this contract language. Mm-hmm. Companies may want to have this agreement because they know it would improve their training and funding for having better trained workers. But the party that wants less government wants to tell private parties that you can ha- what you can have in a contract. Do they tell vendors and businesses what can be in their contract? Sometimes.
4: I, I think this is a great point. It's one I was going to try to get into, but I appreciate them already saying it. And, and uh, to the last point that, uh, that Chris pointed out is I, I tried an experiment in Terre Haute. We've been chamber members for years. So I decided when they took this position that we would quit paying dues, but we still want service. Mm-hmm. They dropped me, so I mean that's a, that's a small example. But you're exactly right. Is I think in Wisconsin the argument was that they shouldn't. Ha- they wanted to do away with the public sector, the, the mm. union part of it. But this is just like you said. Is in on the, the construction industry, I they have 660 members and I have 45 contractors. So you work – we have a multiple agreement, and you can work for multiple contractors, and we're the referral agency. Mm-hmm. And I truly don't think – I would I would truly think is our members will – they appreciate what we do, and I don't think we'd have a large number leading. But what I think is what the, we're really upset about is is how the bait-and-switch is going on. They didn't run for this. It's the number one priority. The DIMS even offered – Let's go ahead and just give us a couple days to look for this research, the constitutionality of this referendum, and we will take care of everything else. Let's just, if you really want to get the business of the state done, let's put this on the back burner for two days, and we'll go through everything else. Bosma rejected it. So that's not really, they're not really wanting to do the people's work either. They're wanting to, I feel like they're bought and paid for. They've, got the, they've already – the right to work has paid for all the ones that's in there. I asked my – another representative question to Mr. Heaton. Did you take any money for right to work? He said no. I said, where, was, where did Mitch get that $183,000 he gave you? He didn't know where he got the money, but it wasn't from right to work.
5: Uh, I, I think that question posed was really one of employee selection. And and the fact of the matter is, to to be specific, you don't need a union security clause to affect uh, an employee selection decision Uh, what the common burden for employers under the uniform guidelines employee selection is your burden is to select the person best suited for the job and if an employer thought the best suited person for a job came out of a union hall and came out of apprentice program and had 20 years of experience they don't need a contract to force them to make that selection decision i think that's the answer
1: to that question all right let's go to the phone we have tom on the line tom yes hello tom's from Terre Haute. okay tom I
6: appreciate, hi there. Um, I just want to say I appreciate the discussion going on because I think that's one of the problems right now is uh, a lot of the folks in Indiana do not understand the seriousness of this issue and how it does affect everybody. But I want to go back to what was um, discussed about the uh, Union Security Clause. And I know um, Mr. Dollar-Schmidt didn't make a comment about that, but uh, if businesses wanted have the same situation with being represented by the chamber, yeah, they may not voluntarily want to pay for the fees, but they should still then have the services provided to them because that's the argument that's coming out of the chamber that it's all voluntary. But it's the same situation with taxes. Um, We're all paying taxes. to have police service and fire service and those schools that are out there, but if I didn't pay those taxes, um, I'd go to jail but I am reaping a benefit, and when a person wants to go to maybe a, a factory that does have union representation, they go in there and they say, boy, I want to work here because they got really good benefits, really good wages. Oh, I have to pay a little bit of a fee for that? All right, I'm not interested. I'll go to Walmart. So I, I appreciate the discussion, and I hope this uh, discussion continues in the future. All right. Thanks, Tom.
2: That actually is a really good point because of the way our labor law is set up. And our labor law is different from the law of any other countries in that we have this system of exclusive representation. Mm -hmm. We set up a bargaining unit like a congressional district. We have an election. If a majority vote for the union, they get the union. If a a majority don't, you don't get a union, even if you want a union. And, And so it is a lot like a congressional district. And the idea of paying for being serviced is a lot like a tax. Now, in other countries, they don't have exclusive representation. If you want to be represented by a union, you go down and sign up with the government for a union. If only thirty percent of the workers sign up with the union, they get represented, and the rest don 't and it 's very easy to be represented in other countries, which is one reason why they have higher union representation but also you, you don 't get this problem where where you know, people don 't want to be in and, and have to pay or whatever but that's, if they want to do away with the system of exclusive representation, I actually would be in favor of that. I think the European system on, on, uh, repre- on organization is much better. Mm-hmm. Do we
1: have any more of them? Yeah, there, I've got America? another one. Uh,
0: it says, What business is required to provide any benefit of representation by law in which they have not, in which, I'm sorry, in which they are not being compensated for this work? So
4: that's more of a comment. Though. Yeah. yeah. Well, and a and it goes government. to that right to work one. I, I did I have one thing I want to point out. Is this law going to apply to these manpower, labor-ready, you know, these temporary services? And are you familiar? We, we, uh, we, have a 4% working assessments. Only when you're working you're paying 4%. Mm-hmm. And we that's what operates that pays the bills, pays my salaries. Are you familiar with what they're paying for these temp services? Mm-hmm. 35 to 50%. Now that should be illegal mm-hmm. that high. But if you call and you want a temp secretary or you want somebody you're going to pay the full boat. They're going to hold that money out, and it's not voluntary, and you can't say, I don't want that representation because you willingly went in there, and they provide the service. Mm -hmm. Now, you know ahead of time what you're going to get, so you Mm -hmm. accept that, but they accept it because in these times that we're in. But so that's what I think should be a more of a focus. You know, if we were charging thirty-five to fifty percent, I think that would be outrageous. I,
5: I can I can actually answer that question. The way the bill is drafted, it affects all private employers. And the reason that the, the example you gave, the temporary agency, is important because when a temporary worker uh, works, they're actually an employee of the temporary agency, not of the employer where they fulfill the assignment. So that, that's why that works that way.
1: Okay. We've got less than 30 seconds, but I want to ask Ken schmidt very quickly. Do you think that these fines that the legislature is talking about are, are constitutional? Do I think they're
2: constitutional?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, you may uh, not be able to answer that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I, 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 that's not my my wick is labor and employment law. I guess off the top of my head, I'd have to say a, a, an intelligent court would, if they refuse to pay the fine, an intelligent court would say that's a political question and not enter into it. All but right. I'm not absolutely certain that that's what I'm not I'm okay. not we, uh, we have an intelligent court, I'm not absolutely certain that's what <laughs> The potato
0: what remains hot. All right. That's right. <laughs> okay. We are
2: out of time. This has been a great
1: show. I want to thank our, our guests, Ken Dalschmidt, Todd Thacker, and Chris Schrader for Mary Catherine Carmichael, uh, producer Gretchen Frazee, and engineer Mike Paschkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online
7: at mypremierortho.com.